You have reached a phone call from Paul, a literary hub podcast. To hear more, visit lithub.com. Part 2 of Paul Holden Graber's conversation with Nicole Muley. Tell me, um, because I mentioned him earlier, are you familiar with the poetry of Pessoa? There's a there's a an extraordinary poem of his called "In the Tobacco Store," or the Tobacconist. I don't know it. What am I thinking of? There's definitely there was definitely there was definitely, a, uh, there was definitely something where I I remember reading him in French class. I feel like that must have been the case because he was he was a sort of famous like you know like a flaneur. But there was something there was something that that happened. I, I'll have to you you. Well, sort of... Only because I want um, one of the gifts I, I, I'd like to get from Nico Muley in my lifetime is a composition um, based not only on Cavafy, an old man, which I think is important. Um, and I, I think, you know, hearing you read it and hearing that poem, it needs your music. But I think Pessoa needs Muley. Um, oh, if I will. I will. I I will. I will. Well, I'll. 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 I'll just read to you the first four lines. This is the great pleasure of having the internet right by me of the tobacco shop. I don't know if it's a good translation or not, but he, the first lines are: "I'm nothing. I'll always be nothing. I can't want to be something, but I have in me all the dreams of the world." Woo. Well, you'll see, you'll see, Nico. Wouldn't it be great if um, a commission, as it were, um, happened on, the, on a phone call from Paul uh, like this, simply because this Cavafy poem made me think so much of Pessoa, and it may be completely inaccurate. And Daniel Mendelssohn may just say, Paul, you, you, you really, really are ignorant. But, but that's fine. That's fine. I'm, you know, I've, I've, I've come to realize that I am a pretend scholar. But listen, um, I, I thought of you in, a, in, in another context just two days ago. What about the news of Stephen Karam? I'm so, I'm so happy for Stephen. Um, it, it's, it's totally great. And I think what, one of the things that I was so pleased about with that play is that it, it really does get better every time you, every time you watch it. And it's so, and I saw it, you know, in several iterations, both before it was on, on Broadway and on Broadway. And it's just, it's just so, it's just so great when you know, when you know someone really well and then they make a thing and then other people get to see that thing and other people like it. What, what was your work, just for our, the people who are eavesdropping on this phone call, um, what was your relationship with Stephen Karam, and which play are you referring to now? Uh, sorry, so Stephen and I um, wrote an opera together. So Stephen wrote the libretto for um, the, my opera Dark Sisters, which is about a, a family of polygamists. 
Um, and his play, um, The Humans, is on Broadway right now and just won a Tony the day before yesterday. Um, and not just one Tony, it won like four Tonys, uh, which is great. And what is incredible about it, I've only seen the play once, but thankfully he's going to be taking my phone call. Um, I think he's my next phone call. So I think it's just magnificent, um, you know, as, as synergies go, that um, my next phone call is um, with Stephen Karam and that in a couple of days from now, I speak with Laurie Anderson. I mean, life, life just, just is beautiful. I, as I often say, I've stopped counting my blessings. There are too many. But one of the things that Stephen said, which I think is so moving, is that the play got where it got. And this he said to me before winning any Tony. It got where it got without any famous, you know, really famous actor. And that, I think, is remarkable because all of the actors in The Humans, which I thought was fantastic and which I saw just before it opened to the public, um, are really first rate. I mean, extraordinary actors and a fantastic story. And I've only seen it once, but now you've made me think before speaking to him, I must go and see it again. Yeah, it's all, I mean, it's also like it, it's on your block, essentially. I know, I know. You just leave your office and turn right. I mean, That's right. <laughs> That's right. But you know, since I get lost, I'll have to. Be, I'll have to leave early. Yeah. Right. No. Exactly. Yeah. Leave very early. Yeah. Um, and but no, it's it, I, yeah, exactly as you say. It's like there's no. I don't. I don't want to say there's no star power because all the, all the actors in it are amazing. But it's not. It's something where the text itself uh, can keep. It, it, but these actors have to keep this text afloat. And there's no, there's no kind of silver bullet that's just like, oh, this is the kind of the kind of virtuoso acting part that needs to just cut through the thing like a shark. It's it's everyone working in tandem, and working inside the inside the space that that David Zinn created. I mean, it's a really interesting. I guess I mean for me, what, it, it it really does feel like the, the claustrophobia of family, where you're. It's not just it's not it's not dysfunction that you know is multi multi generational Shakespearean dysfunction. It's we're all in these three rooms together, kind of suffering. <laughs> suffering. You know, it, it, it's amazing you say this because um, it it really again because I can't not quote. I mean, it just never happens. Maybe someday I'll speak in my own voice, but probably it will be with the voices of everyone else. But there's a extremely short line by André Gide about families. I'll say it in French, and not for pretension reason, but because it comes to my mind and then translated it so short that it's easy. He says, famille, colon, famille, je vous hais. Families. I hate you. I hate you. And this, he, that's from Le Nourito Terrestre, right? Yes, it is. It is. You would know. I had I I got I got me some sheet in in college. You got, <laughs> and then he goes on right, and then he goes yes. to describe all these little rooms. That's right. right. And, and you're right. Claustrophobia. Oh of, gosh, you're absolutely right. You're as bad as I am. It's but, no that now you're just remembering because 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 all those closed doors and little. I mean, you know, it was funny like thinking about a lot of French writing about about homes and about like the and and Paris and about how space works. It always feels like what they're describing is a really like cigarette infused cat, uh, set of Hollywood squares. Yes. These little like kind of closed off environments where everyone's dysfunctional and like Whoopi Goldberg is about to like pop out at any second. And it, it feels like there's a there's, there's always a, a, a kind of gridded claustrophobia to it. And and I must say, you know, obviously when I mention no star power, I only mentioned in terms of, of Stephen's play that 
what is so great is that all the actors are stars, but he didn't need to, you know, employ someone who is super famous to make this play exactly. this play work. It works. One might say it works in a sense on its own merits, but obviously everybody needs to understand that this in no way puts down people who have earned, uh, you know, have earned the, the the power and glory that comes with fame, which indeed will come now to Stephen uh, with his play and to his cast and to his director and to everybody who now will want to see it. And, and he's so young and he's so cute and he's so um, unassuming and he's so generous. I had occasion to speak to him once in public. He's just he's just marvelous to speak to. Now, what else, um, uh, Nico? Are you are you? I, I know you work on probably 15 projects at the same time. What, what, what else is, is occupying and preoccupying you these days? Right now, at this, at this, at this very moment and on this very day, um, when I was, let's see, okay, so pa pause that thought. When I was um, 14 and 15 years old, I um, went to um, Tanglewood, which is the summer home of the Boston Symphony, which runs not just a sort of program for college-age people, but also there's a sort of spin-off program for people in high school. For, and I was there as a composer, and it is the 50th anniversary of that institution. So wow. um, they asked me to write a sort of a sort of celebratory thing um, for a bunch of percussionists. So it's ten, I'm writing a piece for 10 percussionists to sort of celebrate the anniversary of this place that was so important to me. And, and miraculously, it's a bunch of current student percussionists, but it's also friends of mine um, from when I was there, which was 20 years ago. Uh, who, who are percussionists now, who are sort of professionals. So it's this group of sort of, of you know, high, high school students and then my t friends for 20 years. It's a surreal experience. So I'm, I'm, I'm right now, once I finish this, this Marnie task, I'm looking at um, how to distribute all these players over all these marimbas, <laughs> which, sounds like a, which sounds like a kind of word problem in the SATs, right, where if you have 10 percussionists and four marimbas, and you know, eight minutes of music in which to, in which to distribute their efforts. And when when will this be performed? This is in August at some point. Now, now, this summer. This summer, yeah, yeah. This summer. Oh well, well, if if we're around, I'd I'd love to come and hear it. I, that would be absolutely magnificent. I remember going there uh, once to Tanglewood. I mean, several times to Tanglewood, but once I went with Myra Kelman, who we both know, and who who united us. You know, um, Nico, possibly one of the greatest nights of my life. <laughs> um, uh, you know what's coming, but people who are listening to this don't know. I had occasion to meet the great artist Myra Kelman, great illustrator, great lover of words and poetry and music and all things good. And she illustrated the elements of style by Strunk and White. And I met her about one week into being into New York. And she said that when she illustrated the elements of style, she heard music. And I asked her how long she had had that problem. And the next thing she said is, you know, I it would be interesting in some way to figure out a way of having music during an event where you and I might talk. And I said, no, how about an event where music is central? since it really is what accompanied you while you were illustrating it. And then maybe, from your point of view, describe what happened. So, so basically, Myra asked me if I would write this sort of 
multi-part. Um, I, I'm not even sure how to describe it. No, it's nearly impossible, isn't it? It's, it's a sort of perverse oratorio thing. And essentially what, what, what ended up happening was that Myra and I chose um, some of the more poignant example sentences from Struck and White. Because it's not just a... It's not, not just a um, uh, a, a manual, but it's also an amazing piece of writing because they say they say things like, um, you know, there's there's just these beautiful examples of how to do things linguistically. We say, you know, well, Susan, comma, this is a fine mess we're in, right? As, as, right. as an example of how to use that sort of comma, um, or you know, and 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 also things like you know, be be. Uh, clarity is the most important. You know, th- these these wonderful sentences. And so basically, I set a lot of these for two singers, and then a, a, a handful of my friends who played kind of random instruments, viola and banjo and percussion, and then um, Myra and a bunch of her friends were this strange orchestra of found objects. So people were playing teacups and pillows and little toys, xylophones, and we just assembled this bizarre, completely surreal kind of things that, that a, a thing that looked like a combination, it looked and sounded like a combination of my obsession with grammar and one of Myra's illustrate, one of Myra's paintings, where there are all these objects that you recognize that sort of strange sizes and strange depth perception. And instead of doing it in the obvious place in, in the library, we did it in the reading room. Um, so we sort of took over this iconic space, and it, it felt, it still feels to me like I, it was a, a dream, like one of those things where you say, you know, I was, I was there, but it was also a swimming pool, and there were all these dogs. Like there, it was, it was, yeah, 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 yeah. And you know, the the reading room obviously is usually a place where when it's a Supposed to be silent. Exactly, and then and we, we, you know, the piece begins with this loud bang, and there were ladders. I mean, it's it's by far it's by far the strangest thing. Although, Paul, you you should know that 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 uh, you know in in my community, especially with my friend Nadia, who was playing the viola, Nadia Nadia Sarda. Who now has gone on to be the scene of fabulous viola solo yes. podcast and is uh, meet the composer. She, she and I still talk about elements of style being being the sort of opus one of the way that we all live now. Well, you know, um, a, a few things come to my mind. One is repetition is very dangerous, but there might be, as Kierkegaard somewhere says, repetition with a difference. There may be a way, and we should talk about that at another point, obviously not here, of repetition with a difference. Um, uh, I don't know what that would look like, but I must say that was a a perfect moment when Isaac Misrahi was hitting on an egg beater and you were there with... Uh, I, I'm sure I'm getting the name wrong. Uh, was the name of your orchestra Needless Word Orchestra? O- omit Needless Words Orchestra. <laughs> what? How was it? Uh, omit Needless Words? It was great. Omit Needless Words. Oh, it's just incredible, and to have singers on the balustrade of of the of the reading room. I mean, you know, the reading uh, to, to me that reading room is kind of the Ellis Island of New York, and to have to have you all there. I mean, it was such a moment of sheer joy. The expression on your face and the expression <laughs> I remember it. I remember it, it, very it well. was just the expression on your face of disbelief. The expression on Myra's face of disbelief was just so tremendous. But um Nico, something else I I I'd I'd love to talk to you about briefly is just the it would seem the the, the deep inspiration you get from from words and from literature. I remember when I had occasion uh, to bring you together 
early on with, with Salman Rushdie, you were just so joyous to meet him because you just felt such a kindredness with his word, work. And you, you just wanted to meet the man because you loved his work, which is always a very dangerous thing, of course, but a risk we need to take. Right. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> but but the, these, these people inspire you deeply. I mean, literature inspires you. Uh, living writers inspire you. You, you. This is where, where in a way, it, it, be, it begets what you need to do when you write music. Part of this is just my the way that my brain is wired, but the way I the way I think about music, it it, it starts with you know the, the friction of kind of one sound against another, of one pitch against another pitch, or of one tiny gesture against another tiny gesture, and and you know just the grain of language is is really appealing to me, and when you when you when you look at or when you when you read or when you process or when you memorize great text and it can be anything you can you can find great writing you know you can find great writing in the the new york times you can find great writing yes. in graffiti you can find great writing in books but when you, when you find it and it goes on and it's kind of virtuosically de- deployed um it feels to me like an incredibly musical thing where it's not an, it's not an accidental kind of friction that makes a spark between two words or two sounds or two you know two um even just parts of speech. And that, that's the thing with, with Rushdie's work is it, is it feels like he's constantly, the use of language is constantly electrified and constantly on, it's constantly on. There's you see, you that, see, electrified again, this is the language you were talking about when you were talking about what is nearby as we were talking about deadline. It's really that. It's, it's a charged space. It's a charged space. And I think all of the, all of his books, all of his writing, even even the the nonfiction, or you know, arguably, especially the nonfiction, has this has this charge to it. And I think that that you know, in a lot of cases, and this is something that I I criticize myself for. You know, it's easy when you're when you're writing or when you're when you're talking or when you're writing music to to establish moments of electricity and then kind of tread water for a little bit and then pick up with the next one. And you can sort of you can sort of construct it construct it in not a particularly taught way, um, but but when you read when you again when you when you grab onto great language it's it's just it's just electricity from the beginning to the end. So so the 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 opera um, we were talking about Mani uh, premieres in London in a year and a half, and in New York when when will we have the pleasure of hearing it? Do you think? Year and a half. That, I so think. three, three, three years, three years from now. Is that right? Yeah. So, yeah. More or less, more or less. By the by, the time this conversation you and I are having, I will have already have spoken uh, to Laurie Anderson. But if you had to ask Laurie a question, what would it be? But, you know, it's such a funny question. I, I feel like someone else asked me that about a month ago. I feel like with Laurie, um, I always, I always want to know. What is the what is the thing that she wants to do the most if it if she could do anything like if there was zero if there were zero restrictions would she go to space would she go like I feel I feel like if anyone's going to make something in space it's going to be Lori that's fantastic like, <laughs> yeah limitless I feel like she must have, there must be a thing 
in the back of her mind where, you know, there's, there's this kind of crazy, if I could do anything, what would I do? Well, I will ask her. I, I, I absolutely will ask her. I was up at Mass Mocha, uh, you know, by Williamstown in, in North Adams, and she has a huge working space there given to, to artists. And I don't know exactly what she's going to be doing there, but I think they're giving her not quite space, but a lot of space. It's you know it's an interesting thing with with I mean wh- one of the things that I always find interesting I, inter- I keep on saying interesting L- Laurie's work I've always seen it in the context of um, large institutions and that's great and it's uh, you know for for me I, my introduction to her work aside from her her records um, was always at BAM and I saw everything yeah. she did at BAM for a million years and you know and I think. You know, a lot of her, a lot of her outdoor pieces. Now, I've, I've started to see in her drone pieces and, and, and all these things. And I'm and but it's inter- It's to me the fascinating thing is what happens if she could completely choose the space, and if it if it weren't part of a museum or a gallery or BAM or or similar. Like, what's the what's the next frontier? And and this is something that that not to bring it back to me, but this is something that I always think about too. Where it's you know half half of the music I write is for concert halls. But then also I'm, I'm, I try to write music for churches. I'm trying to make music for something like the, you know, the public library for the reading room. You know, it's, it, it's, it's starting to when you have the, when you have the luxury um, of being able to actually think about what you'd like to do um, and where you'd like to do it. I think that that's that's so fascinating. I would I would lo- I would love to hear Laurie's take. Well, on. I, you you will hear her answer because I will ask her that question. May I ask it as coming from you? Okay, good. Um, I want to leave you with a line, since we mentioned him earlier on, of André Gide, and just maybe have you comment on it, and maybe have you comment on it in the context in which we find our democracy now. André Gide said, it is better to be hated for what you are than to be loved for what you are not. I, but that's a good response. I think, you know, uh, uh, to my mind, it is one of those paradoxical French sentences. I think that what what worries me now so much, obviously, is a, is a kind of hatred one feels all around and uh, the way in which people are fearful and, and, and demonizing each other. And I think that one of the great things about Gide, and I think to bring it, to bring Gide outside of the sentence, to bring him back to what we were talking about a little bit earlier is uh, when you were talking about Laurie and yourself and the kindredness between Laurie and you is this notion of possibility, this notion of not being classified, this notion of being free. What would you do if you just were left alone and could do anything? I feel like what I would, I would, I would take a long time cooking something very simple, and I would, and I would listen, I would listen to Renaissance choral music for like twelve hours. <laughs> Who's choral music? Just Renaissance choral music. I would listen to William Byrd <laughs> for twelve hours. Uh, yeah, I think so. I think I could get away with it. Well, um, Nico, it's been a, a true, true pleasure 
to be speaking. As to, always mine. And, to, I, and you, you, you send me poems and I'm going to send you music and you, then let's see what happens. Well, you know, could life be better? I send you poems, you send me music. I mean, a pretty good exchange. And since we were talking about the... Uh, yes, uh, as we were talking about, this is really a wonderful and enchanted form of translation. Yes, and I will send you Pessoa. Um, I, I, I believe that the poems are something you must read, but you must also read his narrative work. I'll leave you with the title of it. His, his book is called The Book of Disquiet. Ooh, okay. I'm gonna buy, you know, I'm going to buy that at this time. Do that. Until soon, my friend. Oh. Okay, talk to you soon, Paul. Bye-bye. Bye.